Hey everyone, welcome back to my channel. So happy to have you here. Today we are going to be talking about a case of Munchausen by proxy. And these cases are very disturbing and very interesting. If you have never heard of Munchausen by proxy, I will explain exactly what it is, what it means. Today is different though, because I was actually able to get information right from Hannah. So huge thank you to her for sharing her story with us all today. So I will explain to you Hannah's story here in a minute. But before I get started with Hannah's story, I did want to remind you guys that I am currently running charity merch for National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And 100% of the proceeds from this collection is going to NCMEC. It's available for a limited time at milehiremerch.com. I just love how these designs turned out. And like I said, we are going to only be running them for a limited amount of time. So if you want one and you want to support National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, now is the time to grab one before we are just sold out. I'm not sure if we'll do another restock. I don't really know what our plan is or if maybe we'll create something different. If you want this specific design though, now would be a great time to get it. I'll have a link directly to that in the description box, or you can just, like I said, go to milehiremerch.com. And a big thank you, of course, to everyone who has purchased something from this collection so far. So like I said, today we are going to be talking about a psychological disorder called Munchausen by proxy. I think the most well-known example of Munchausen by proxy is Dee Dee Blanchard and Gypsy Blanchard. Many of you have probably heard of that case. I know a show came out on it recently. It's called Mommy Dead and dearest. I don't know how that was. I definitely have seen mixed reviews from you guys. I'm not a big fan of reenactments in true crime. It's just not my thing. But I actually did do a video on Gypsy Rose Blanchard years ago. It was one of the first true crime videos that I had ever done. If you've never seen it, I'll have that linked below. It is truly a fascinating case. So if you've never heard of that case or Munchausen by proxy, let's kind of break it down a little bit before we get into today's case. So Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a psychological disorder where a caretaker, typically a mother, makes up or causes symptoms in their child so that they can appear to be sick. It's marked by attention-seeking behavior where the caregiver receives praise, recognition, and sometimes money for having a sick child. It's this, this really weird mental disorder where uh, parent, usually parents, will um, make their kids sick in order to get attention and to have their kid be put in the you know the, the role of patient and then be put in the role of parent of patient, uh, you know it's it's different when somebody is faking an illness because they are you know trying to get out of trouble with the law or something like that. This is they they really want the the attention that comes with having a sick kid. The disease first became recognized in 1951 and was actually named after a fictitious 18th century character from a book named Baron Munchausen, who was known for his dramatic but false stories. The disease has since been renamed Factitious Disorder Imposed on Another, or FDIA. So that is what it's referred to by most medical professionals now. However, most people recognize it as Munchausen by proxy. Changing the name of the disorder to Factitious Disorder Imposed on Another has made it far more specific and easy to understand. And there are a handful of famous cases that are related to FDIA, but there actually isn't a lot of conclusive data about how many people are actually diagnosed with it. It's not very common, and experts don't really, know, they will readily admit that they don't exactly know how common it is because the people who have it lie. That's, I mean, that's part of the, the deal. They're, they're lying about their, their kids being sick, and they are breaking the law. 
um, so they aren't going to tell anybody. You know, even if they came to a counselor and said, you know, I think I have Munchausen's by proxy and I've been making my kids sick. Uh, you know, if somebody told that to me, I'm a mandated reporter. The first thing I would have to do is call the police. Um, so they uh, they aren't going to tell anybody what they're doing. Um, so so I, I think it goes undiagnosed and unreported a lot. What we do know is that it seems to primarily affect mothers. And recent data shows that there's up to 9% mortality rate in children with parents who suffer from FDIA. According to the Cleveland Clinic, it has been estimated that a thousand of 2.5 million cases of child abuse are related to this disorder. People who have FDIA may also experience factitious disorder imposed on self, which has been previously known as Munchausen syndrome, not by proxy. Basically, by proxy just means onto someone else. And what's interesting is it's common among people who have a background in the medical field. And that's because these people commonly know the language that is needed to convince others and sometimes other medical professionals that their child is ill. And they would also know what pills, what medications they should give their child to make them appear to be sick, to give them false symptoms. And it's not fully understood how and why someone ends up with FDIA, but it can be associated with childhood trauma and certain personality disorders. It's this really weird combination of usually anxiety and uh, you know, delusions in their head, along with you know usually a pretty messed up personality structure. And then it all just kind of combines and reality gets blurred and they kind of know that what they're doing is wrong, but they have this total lack of self-awareness at the same time. Uh, so it just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, it, it happens, but it, it doesn't make sense why. Again, it's not fully understood why someone would do this, but there are some motivations that can explain why someone would want to create a fake illness in their child. And first off, there is emotional benefit. People with FDIA are often seeking praise and support from their community for, you know, taking such great care of their child. Normally, these people crave sympathy and attention from other people. Another reason reason, however, that people might do this is for financial benefit. Having a sick child can often lead to donations and monetary support that you may not otherwise receive. And the case that we are going to look at today definitely has motivations in both those categories. I do want to clarify though that even though we are going to be referencing Munchausen by proxy or FDIA and looking at it in this case, the judge in this case has actually rejected the notion that the defendant actually has it. So let's start by talking about Hannah. Hannah Milbrandt was born on August 25th, 1995 and grew up in Urbana, Ohio. Her parents, Terry and Robert, each had kids from other relationships, but Hannah was the only child from their marriage. And growing up, Hannah's father worked as a printer and her mother had a handful of jobs, which included some work as a home care nurse. Hannah remembers her very early childhood as being somewhat too good to be true. Growing up, she said she was very close with her father and remembers wanting to spend more time with him than she wanted to spend with her mother. And she remembers being very emotional, crying a lot on the days that she didn't get to see her father. She really wanted to spend as much time with him as possible. She said that her mother, Terry, was the kind of mother that would buy her love, that she was always throwing things in her face and not actually giving her what she needed as a child when it comes to, you know, emotional support and love. Hannah 
also remembers her mom being very materialistic, spending a lot of her time shopping, and that she never would go anywhere without having her nails done. And even though her mom showed her affection by buying her things, and Hannah did get to have some of the nicer toys and clothes, she knew that there was something wrong with the way that her mom showed affection. And Hannah also remembers that Terry was always picking fights, whether that was with her other children or with Robert. Sometimes she grew up in a very chaotic environment with a lot of screaming and a lot of fighting, and that was very tough on her. But everything really changed for their family in February of 2002 when Hannah found out that she was diagnosed with leukemia. Hannah remembers going to a very routine doctor's appointment after she had kind of a headache, cold situation, you know, just basic symptoms. And then suddenly she was diagnosed with leukemia. And leukemia, if you didn't know, is actually the most common type of cancer among children and teens, according to the American Cancer Society. It actually accounts for almost one out of every three cancer diagnoses in that age group. Terry told her and everyone else that doctors had found three tumors in her body, one in the base of her neck, one in her jaw, and one in her spine. And Hannah was only six years old when she was told that she only had a few months left to live. And obviously that was so hard for her to wrap her mind around and just shocking and devastating. And almost immediately after she was diagnosed, Terry wanted to shave her head. Hannah remembered not wanting to have her head shaved and having it shaved was devastating for her. But of course it made everything look more real. She told her whole family and the community that Hannah had began losing her hair due to her chemotherapy treatments. Hannah remembers crying a lot, saying that she felt like she looked like a boy and normally she loved putting her hair up in a ponytail and now her mom was regularly having it shaved. And in addition to having her head shaved, she was also told that she had to wear a surgical mask at all times. Terry was telling everyone that Hannah had to wear this mask because she was at high risk of picking up other illnesses and that it would protect her from possibly, you know, catching something that could kill her even faster. And because she was high risk, Terry also kept her from playing with other kids in the neighborhood, many of them who she used to be really close with. So it was really starting to affect her personal life. Hannah also wore three large bandages on her body at all times. And Terry would explain to people that these bandages were covering her chemotherapy ports. So if you don't know, a port is a device that's used to draw blood and give treatments. And because Terry had previously worked as an at-home nurse, she told others that she was often able to treat her daughter herself. So Hannah still went to school at North Elementary, but she was restricted from any excessive contact with other kids because she was believed to be at risk for catching something that could kill her. So when her friend Emily and their classmates found out about her cancer diagnosis, they were all confused. Like, you know, any child would be. So Terry would often come into their class and explain what was going on, try to get the kids to understand how best to treat Hannah and how to make sure that she's not at further risk. She told the school and the other children that Hannah might experience seizures and how to react if she ever does have one. So everyone at the school felt really bad. And to help Hannah feel more comfortable, they ended up having a hat for Hannah Day, where every student came to school wearing a hat so that she didn't feel so alone. But North Elementary was not the only place 
that Terry went into detail about her daughter's cancer. The entire community became involved in the Milbrandt's lives because Terry would go around and tell people how much they were struggling financially due to Hannah's treatments. So Hannah's friend, Emily's father, was a firefighter. And when he heard about Hannah's illness, he got the firemen from his station to donate $500 from their union funds. This is very generous because obviously they actually need this money for other reasons. And this would not be the only donation to the Milbrandt family. The chief of the fire department also donated several hundreds of dollars directly out of his own pocket so that Hannah could have a puppy that was named Socks. The firemen also frequently visited bake sales that were put on to raise money for their family. And sometimes they would pay up to $40 for a loaf of bread just to show their support. And of course, local churches got involved with donating money as well. Their family attended Faith Fellowship Church and over the course of several months, the church donated more than $7,000 to their family. Terry told anyone she could, as often as she could, that Hannah's treatments cost at least $500 per week. So there was just a massive effort by the community and local businesses and even children who wanted to help Hannah. They would hold these special events like a benefit spaghetti dinner, for example, all to raise money for Hannah's treatments. And one of the efforts that many people made to raise money for Hannah was through soda can tabs. These tabs could be turned in and recycled in exchange for money. And people all over Urbana were collecting their soda tabs and bringing them to the Milbrandt so that Terry could turn them in and get some money. And even though it wasn't obviously very much money and it wouldn't generate enough to completely solve their problems, it was a way for the entire community to get involved as much as they could. Specifically, there was one girl in the community who had a ton of her own medical concerns, and she wanted to help Hannah. She had been collecting soda tabs for years and donated every last one of them to Hannah and her family. And she, you know, knew that she could use that money for her own medical needs and her own family, but she felt like it was more important to help others. So the more time went on, the more serious Terry said that her daughter's medical condition actually was. Eventually, she started telling everyone that Hannah only had six months left to live. And Hannah remembers that she felt horrible during this whole time. And she hated going out with her mother in public. She hated all of the pity that she was getting. And she said she could feel the way her mom was kind of thriving off the attention. Hannah would even be brought to beauty appointments with her mom. She often went to touch of beauty salon and Terry would tell a lot of the women who did her nails about how sick her daughter was right in front of her. But many people started to raise an eyebrow with how much Terry seemed to be spending on her nails and her hair when she said that she was too poor to afford these cancer treatments. But there were many people in the community who thought, you know, maybe she's getting these services done for free because they feel bad for her. So when it came to everything regarding Hannah's treatment, Terry was the parent who was in charge. Many people question why Robert wasn't going to the hospital with his child, who was supposedly dying. But he said he wasn't as active because he was working as hard as he could to help make as much money as possible for his daughter's care. And he also said that he had a strong fear and dislike of hospitals. And I know a lot of people will have thoughts on that, but it turns out Robert actually did try to go to some of her appointments. But Terry was very pushy about that. She would always say, I need to be the one to go or 
if he did make arrangements to actually be there, she would say that they got canceled and she would always purposely schedule them when she knew that he had to go to work. And even though Robert wasn't fully involved with the actual treatment of Hannah's cancer, she says that she remembers he was always around to cheer her up and that she felt extremely close to her dad during this time. And even today, the two of them have a very strong relationship. So when it came to Hannah's care, Terry also said that she was being treated at home by an in-home nurse named Beth. And Robert never actually met Beth because she would always come to their house while he was working. Shocking. But of course, Terry would tell him how much Beth was helping their daughter. And he would come home and see pill bottles all around the house that Terry would claim were chemotherapy pills. These pills, which were crushed up, were normally given to her in the evenings and Hannah would wake up and feel disoriented and groggy most mornings. And it was those mornings that Beth would come over and take care of Hannah. And so Hannah says her memory of this Beth person was like a foggy dream. But at the time, she felt like Beth was a real person. She would go off of her mother's explanation of Beth and her description that she had short brown hair, an inviting smile. And Hannah describes Beth being real to her in the same way that Santa is real to kids. It's like when you hear about something so often as a child, they become real to you in a way, in your mind. And of course, she is being given all these different medications. So she felt like Beth was very real at the time. And that's also how she felt about her doctor's appointments. She would go to those feeling very groggy and disoriented from the medications that she was being given by her mom. She mainly remembers her mom and her grandmother, Mary, taking her for ice cream and that she would fall asleep shortly after that. So it was all a blur to her. So as the months passed, more and more money was being donated to their family to help with Hannah's treatments. And eventually the narrative began to shift and Terry started telling everyone that Hannah had only weeks left to live. And around this time, Hannah began more serious counseling sessions at school and she'd be asked to draw pictures of heaven and talk about her fears. And obviously all of that was really, really intense for her. I mean, can you imagine as a child trying to process what all of this means and having a very confused feeling constantly from the medications that you're on, from the people you're around and feeling this underlying sense that her mom was getting some type of enjoyment out of all of it. So by the time the holidays are approaching in 2002, Terry was still continuously asking for help from their community to support them through these treatments. They were receiving tons of free meals and gifts from dozens of people in the Urbana community. And one woman in particular who did her nails at Touch of Beauty even went out of her way to buy Hannah a $100 Barbie dream house. And this woman actually did a lot to help the Milbrandt family that year. She was always on board when it came to helping them in whatever way she could, and she even sold candles in her store to help raise money. But it was also around the holiday season that some people started becoming very suspicious about Hannah's apparent illness. Terry saying that Hannah would be a lot slower than kids her age and drowsy. A lot of people were not experiencing that when it came to how Hannah was acting. Hannah seemed to have just as much energy and was keeping up just fine with the other seven-year-olds in her class. And many people were just 
kind of in awe of Hannah, that she seemed to be handling all of the treatments and the emotional stress so well. It just seemed like Hannah was so normal and didn't act how they would expect a child who was, you know, weeks away from dying to act. She wasn't having seizures and, you know, beyond the mask and the bandages, she seemed fine. And one thing that started to really stand out to people, particularly her teachers, was her hair. Obviously Hannah's hair had been consistently shaved, but it was growing back very quickly and it wasn't coming in patchy, which doesn't make sense. I mean, in most chemotherapy treatments, when hair does grow back, it comes in very patchy and inconsistent, but hers was growing quickly and it seemed healthy. So the school ended up deciding to call the Department of Job and Family Services of Ohio and they sent investigators to North Elementary School to talk with Hannah. And that's when they discovered that there was nothing under her bandages. That's right, absolutely nothing. Her bandages were covering healthy skin, not chemotherapy ports like Terry had told everyone they were. Hannah also started telling them about a blue pill that she was being given by her mother, and it turns out that this blue pill was a sleeping pill. So investigators went to Terry right away, explained what they had found, and Terry gave up very quickly and admitted that the whole thing was a hoax. She did not hesitate at all to say that her daughter was actually completely healthy and that she had made it all up. Hannah was not sick and she was never diagnosed with cancer. So the whole hoax lasted a total of nine months. And during that time, she had scammed the community out of $31,000, possibly more. So they did a search of the Milbrandt home and they only found $500, leaving them questioning what Terry had done with all the rest of the money. And this is unbelievable as well. They also found bags and bags of those soda tabs that the whole community had been collecting so that they could cash them in and they had done nothing with them, which is weird because you'd think she would want more money, but it sounds like it wasn't quite enough for it to be worth the work it would be to actually turn them in. It seems like just pure laziness. They were literally just left by the trash as if they were useless to them, which is so sad, especially considering that a lot of them had come from that other child in the community who was sick and could have used them for getting some cash for her own treatments. When I was six years old, um, my mother told me that I had cancer and... um... Soon after that, we found out that it was a hoax. Um, She was getting all this money and everything that she was doing was fake. So obviously right away, it was a priority to put Hannah in foster care and get her out of this situation immediately. Terry had admitted that she had been lying to everyone and that this was a giant hoax, but they needed to determine who else in Hannah's life was in on this. And obviously this is about much more than money. Hannah had been drugged. She had been mentally abused all of this time. So investigators ended up arresting both Terry and Robert on charges of child endangerment and theft. But her father, Robert, maintained his innocence from the very beginning. He claims that he was just as shocked as everyone to find out that his seven-year daughter was actually not dying of cancer and that his wife made it all up. And he maintains that innocence to this day, but investigators, of course, arrested him at first. He did manage to post bail, but Terry remained in jail while she awaited trial for the crimes that she had committed. Terry's mother, who I mentioned earlier, Mary, was also suspected to be involved in the hoax. It was believed that Mary had been involved because she was known to be at the treatments with Terry and Hannah. And now that investigators knew 
knew that there was no treatments happening, what was the purpose of Mary's involvement? So she too was arrested and put in jail for two days before her bail was posted and she was free to await trial at home. So as far as Hannah goes, in total, she was in foster care for a full year. Eventually her aunt was granted custody and she took her out of the foster care system. But that one year that she spent in foster care was very traumatic for Hannah. She says that being taken out of the system was one of her greatest blessings. She describes it as truly being her saving grace. And according to her, leaving the system gave her hope for living a better, normal life. After that, um, they were both, both her and my father were both um, sentenced to go to prison and I was taken and put into foster care. And I spent a year there, which was pretty awful. And then I, um, my aunt gained custody of me and I lived with her until I was about 15. So in the indictment against Terry Melbrandt, it was reported that she recklessly tortured and cruelly abused Hannah. On top of that, Terry created a substantial risk to Hannah's health and safety by violating a duty of care, protection, and support. Not only did the indictment outline the charges of endangerment and felonious assault, but also the several charges that she faced for stealing thousands of dollars from the Urbana community. Terry stole from several local churches, the school, and almost a dozen small businesses. And on top of all of this, the community was shocked to learn that Terry had been to prison before. Terry was actually convicted of credit card fraud in 1989. She was given probation for those charges, but she violated her probation. So she was sentenced to a year in a women's facility and nobody in her community knew that this was part of her past. She was seen widely in the community as this amazing Christian woman who was a great mother taking care of her sick child. Robert also faced several charges, including conspiracy to commit child endangerment and conspiracy to commit felonious assault, as well as theft. Mary, Hannah's grandma, faced only theft charges. Robert and Mary both pleaded not guilty, and Terry initially pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Terry claimed that a psychiatric evaluation resulted in the diagnosis of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And she said that this disorder is what caused her to do what she did. And even Robert initially felt that this diagnosis fully explained why his wife did what she did. He believed that she was really suffering from this disorder. And so he decided to stand by his wife. But Hannah disagrees. Hannah does believe that Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a very real thing that people should know about. She does not believe her mother was suffering from it. She does believe that Terry was suffering from other mental health issues and things that happened to her in her childhood, you know, traumas that were not dealt with. But she does not believe that her mother suffered from MSP. And the judge also agreed with her that Terry did not have Munchausen by proxy. So they did not accept her insanity plea and they rejected her claim. During her plea hearing on August 7th, 2003, Terry changed her plea from not guilty by reason of insanity to guilty of the 10 out of 14 charges. Robert also changed his plea from not guilty to guilty on the charges of child endangerment. But Robert's change in plea wasn't because he was admitting guilt. He said that he changed his plea because he was told that Hannah would not go into foster care and instead go right into the care of his sister. And he wanted as little harm to his daughter as possible throughout all of this. And he also didn't want her to have to testify at such a young age, especially after everything else that she had been through. So he was told that pleading guilty would result in six months of probation, but that was incorrect. Robert was actually sentenced to prison and served four years, 11 months. People are very split 
split in the community about whether Robert knew or didn't know. However, Robert has maintained that he did not know and that he is innocent. And I do want to note that while many of you probably have different opinions about Robert and what his involvement was or was not, that Hannah believes her father. She does not think he actually knew what was going on and stands by him to this day. It's been very hard for her to see her father go to prison for a crime that she feels he did not commit. Hannah is adamant that Terry tricked Robert the same way that she tricked the whole Urbana community. And as for her grandma Mary, she was acquitted of all charges and prosecutors could not prove that she was actually aware of what was going on. So I'm sure you want to know what happened to Terry. Well, her sentencing took place on September 24th, 2003, and she was sentenced to six and a half years in prison and would be required to pay $25,300 in restitution. Robert was also ordered to pay $1,100 in restitution to his co-workers and share the $8,000 restitution payment that Terry was required to pay back to the Faith Fellowship Church. And when it came to her actions, Terry actually said that part of her reasoning for doing all of this was to prevent her husband, Robert, from leaving her. I guess the two of them had been fighting a lot in February of 2002. So she thought that their daughter dying of cancer would make him stay. Terry has since said that she fully regrets everything that she did and that she wishes she could be given a lethal injection because she can hardly live in her own skin. Like I mentioned earlier, Hannah lived a really rough year in foster care and then eventually moved in with her aunt. She ended up living with her aunt until she was 15 years old and then she lived with her father for three years. Hannah said that when her and her father reunited that it was just just like picking up where they had left off. And to this day, Hannah has fought for his innocence. And she says that the two of them have become even closer because of what they have gone through together. When Hannah turned 18, she moved out on her own and she ended up going to school in New York. She was there for a little while and then she moved back to Ohio to continue her education. So then both my parents were released from prison. So at 15, I moved in with my dad for a few years. And at about 18, I went and moved out on my own. After I moved out on my own, I lived in New York for a few years, and then I uh, found a school down here and decided that I would come and live down here and work and go to school. And luckily, Hannah went on to live an amazing life. She now works as an Ultimic certified scribe and helps people suffering with eye diseases to have a better chance to see. And she also got married and has two children of her own. Hannah's a big advocate for mental health awareness, and she wants those who have heard her story to know that she still suffers from panic disorder and PTSD and other things. And it's taken her more than 10 years to fully, you know, forgive what has happened to her in her life. She says that she doesn't hate her mother, but she hates what she did to her. But she has said that through her faith, her family, and her friends, she feels she has been able to heal from the trauma of her past and wants anyone who's suffering from mental health issues to know that they are not alone. It's so nice to have somewhat of a happy ending to this story. Obviously, it's just tragic what Hannah went through, but to see her, you know, have a family and have success and to say that she has healed in a lot of ways is just so nice to hear. I think she is so amazing to be so strong after everything that she has been through. I can't even imagine the trauma and the amount of you know work that she has had to do to get to where she is now mentally and just in her life overall. And again, Hannah, I wanted to thank you so much for you know clarifying some information for this video and being part of it. Your story is very important for other people to hear. 
that is going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you for joining me for another episode. And make sure you follow the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really does help me out. If you want to watch the video version of this show, you can find it on my YouTube channel, which will be linked, or you can just search Kendall Ray. I will be back with another episode soon, but until then, stay safe out there.